original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramaytushaloni have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from, the li from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramaytushaloni community, and by affirming their sovereign rights as first people. And we have an announcement to make at the outset because of quorum concerns, and Secretary Morowitz will explain why we're going to change the order of the agenda. Sure. So uh, today, it's possible that we may lose quorum um, a little while uh, during the meeting. So we're going to move the action items together at the beginning of the meeting so the commission can um, ensure that they do their business. Um, therefore, items 9 and 10 will be moved um, directly after item 5, so that all the action will take place together. If the commission loses quorum, they will continue to hold an information session and will continue to discuss all the items on the agenda. It just will be as an information session, not as a, um, uh, an official commission meeting. We'll maintain the video. I'll take notes. The meeting will continue. It just won't be the official session. I also would like to acknowledge a clerical error on my part. Um, there's usually a JCC um, update on the agenda, and I erroneously deleted it by accident. And so the the lagoon the november 12th 2023 laguna honda meeting update will take place and and will be reported on at the december 12th i'm sorry december 19th full commission meeting and again i apologize for that oh, thank thank you very much um the next item on the agenda is approval of the minutes of the health commission meeting of november 7th 2023 you have before you the minutes are there any amendments additions or corrections to these minutes if I may, um, Commissioner Chow asked me to make um, corrections, and there are several. Um, it relates to the consent calendar, which is on page, I'm sorry, on page seven, the Finance and Planning Committee update. I've added the, this, these sentences. Um, she added that the committee requested that the Barty Diagnostics Incorporated contract be removed from the November 2023 contracts report since there were several issues with contract documentation. The contract will be considered at the December 5th, 2023 meeting. And then for the consent calendar item, which is on page eight, the, uh, excuse me, next to the November 2023 contracts report, I've included the clause excluding the Barty Diagnostics Incorporated contract. Thank you. So given those corrections, is there a motion to approve the minutes? So moved. Is there a second? Second. Uh, and I will check for public, public comment. comment. Is there any public comment in the room on the minutes? Okay, let me check and see if there's any folks. If you're online, um, you can press star three to let us know that you'd like to make comment. Great. All right. So there's no um, public comment on this issue. All right. Um, then all in favor of approving the minutes, please say aye. 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 And then, Commissioner Chow, I will um, ask you, since you were remote, how would you vote on this item? Aye. Thank you. Wonderful. All right, then, um, the next item on the uh, agenda is general public comment, and I believe Secretary Moritz has a statement regarding yes. general public comment. Mm -hmm. At this time, members of the public may address the commission on items of interest to the public that are within the subject matter jurisdiction of the commission but are not on this meeting agenda. Each member of the public may address the commission for up to two minutes. The Brown Act forbids a commission from taking action or discussing any item not appearing on the posted agenda, including those raised during public comment. 
Please note that each individual is allowed one opportunity to speak per agenda item. Individuals may not return more than once to read statements from other individuals unable to attend the meeting. Written public comment may be sent to the Health Commission at the following email address, the word health dot the word commission dot dph at sfdph.org. If you wish to spell your name for the minutes, you may do so during your verbal comments without taking your allotted time. Please note that city policies along with federal, state, and local law prohibit discriminatory or harassing conduct against city employees and others during public meetings and will not be tolerated. We will first take public comment from individuals attending the meeting in person in the room. We will then take remote public comment from individuals who have received an accommodation for a disability. I have given each of these individuals a code to speak when they begin their comments. I've not given anyone a code, so today we will not have any folks who have received accommodation. Finally, we uh, will hear remote public comment from all other individuals. There will be a time limit of 20 minutes on the total amount of remote public comment that can be heard on each item from individuals uh, who have not received an accommodation for disability. So let's start. Is there anyone in the room who'd like to make general public comment? All right, so everyone has three minutes. When the buzzer goes off, please um, wrap up your comments. Good afternoon. Uh, thanks for letting me attend the meeting. I'm going to talk a little bit about technology and some items I've been working on that I think are a grave concern of, to San Francisco and public health. Um, the first thing is um, FirstNet was purchased by San Francisco 23rd June 2020. Um, AT&T is, um, is the technology behind it. And part of that agreement that the city signed, the city would not use the services or operate any equipment uh, obtained from the contractor improperly or in violation of any applicable law. Um, what's concerning is yesterday, I got my CDC Freedom of Information request back and it says I'm completely healthy. And that's troubling because the city and county of San Francisco gave me multiple false diagnoses, and it's, I'm not alone. It is happening because people are using FirstNet and other technology to assimilate people for personal and political greed, and it needs to be addressed, and it needs to stop immediately. I have the documentation, and I forward it to you, Grant, and I don't know why it's taking long to fix it. I just don't understand. I have the documents. I have the evidence. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Is there anyone else in the room who would like to make public comment? All right, folks on the line, um, there's no, uh, as I mentioned before, there are no folks who've received accommodation. Great. So we've got no hands for this item. We can Wonderful. move on to the next. All right. So thank you for your, for your comments. Um, the next item on the agenda is the resolution to uh, recommend to the Board of Supervisors to authorize the DPH to accept and expend gifts of $115,000, $37,000, and $10,027.96, and $15,412.24 from Epic Systems Corporation. So, M Mr. Wong will present. Wonderful. Thank you. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Uh, we are seeking for your positive approval to accept a number of donations in an amount of $115,000. Please speak up. Sorry about that. We are seeking for your positive approval to accept a number of donations, an amount of $115,000, and $15,412.24 from the Epic Systems Corporation. These gifts are from the Safety Net Program and also to support the Community Resource Directory and Behavioral Health Project. 
These donations represent philanthropic giving to support Epic customers serving traditionally low-income and underserved communities. The donation will help to improve our services to these communities, and my colleagues and I will endeavor to answer any questions. Thank you. Is uh, there any public comment on this item? Is there any public comment in the room on this item? All right, folks on the line, if you'd like to make public comment on this item, please press star three. No hands, commissioners. All right, any commissioner questions or comments? Hmm. All right, then we'll entertain a motion to approve the resolution. So moved. Is there a second? Second. All right, All right I will start. Uh, Commissioner Chow, how do you vote on this item? Yes. And everyone else in the room? Aye. Aye. Thank you so much. The resolution passes. And so we can move on to the, the next resolution. And uh, Mr. Wong, if you'd uh, enlighten us here, it is the rec uh, resolution to recommend to the Board of Supervisors to authorize the DPH to accept and expend a gift of $382,578.93 from the San Francisco Public Health Foundation. Thank you very much. Uh, the San Francisco Public Health Foundation is donating $382,000. $578.93 to the Department of Public Health. It's a contribution aimed at improving the health and well-being of mothers, children, and adolescents in our city. We are now seeking your approval to accept this donation, which will be used to fund a wide array of services, including prenatal care, specialized child health care, family planning options, and adolescent health services. The overarching goal of this fund, uh, funding is to ensure that our community's most vulnerable groups receive the vital care and support necessary for a healthy starting life, promoting ongoing well-being and equity. And we can answer any questions. Thank you. Is there a motion to approve this resolution? So moved. And, okay. and what about uh, public comment on the item? Any public comment in the room on this item? Right. Don't see any. Thank you. And how about um, remotely? Any public comment? Press star three, please. No one. Any commissioner questions or comments? All right, barring none, uh, we'll start with Commissioner Chow. Do you vote in, uh, to approve? Uh, yes. All right, and the rest of us, aye. 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 Wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you for the presentation. Um, now we're going to go to what has been item nine, right? Yes. Which is the Finance and Planning Committee update. Yes. Okay. Right. And, and Commissioner Child chaired today. Wonderful. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Madam President. Uh, <clears throat> the uh, uh, Finance Committee heard the contracts report, which consisted of four different items. One was the Barty uh, contract, which was discussed at the uh, within our minutes. Um, this was an, an issue of uh, clarifying the terms and the amounts of money. Uh, Barty is a uh, actually the successor organization to Welsh, from which uh, uh, the uh, General Hospital had been contracting uh, for these uh, ambulatory ECG uh, monitoring uh, devices. And so this is merely a continuation. It is a uh, uh, proposed uh, five-year contract at this point. Uh, under uh, Barty now, uh, the amount of uh, costs for each of the items uh, remains the same. 
uh, and uh, there is an annual difference uh, of a negative 141,000 per year because this one's now based on usage. And so uh, we will be uh, uh, reviewing that for recommendation. The next item was uh, from Maxim. Maxim is a uh, additional year contract. It is a, um, a travel, uh, I think this is the one that is, let's see. Uh, yes, these are for temps that are uh, needed uh, as uh, personnel uh, to fill in for the uh, hospitals and network facilities and particularly uh, 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 including Laguna Honda's uh, needs. And uh, it is a 47% annual difference in costs uh, related to the actual usage. As you know, we have a nursing shortage overall, and uh, we have uh, uh, ratios that have to be met uh, within our hospitals. So uh, the maximum contract is being extended by one year and with a annual difference of approximately $900,000. Uh, based upon need. Obviously, we don't need it. We will not be using that. The third contract reviewed uh, for renewal was the San Francisco Public Health Foundation. Uh, this was a renewal from uh, three years to an eight-year contract, and this is for the uh, food security program. Um, it isn't listed on your report, but over 14,000 people per year are served by this program, which are uh, which is actually uh, funded by a multitude of different projects, uh, including the sugary uh, drinks tax and the general fund for about 475,000. I say uh, these are supplements to the uh, 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 food programs that the state has and uh, is used uh, very uh, much by, um, as I said, about 14,000 people. So we would uh, also uh, be recommending that for you. Uh, and uh, lastly, uh, Positive Resource Centers contract, which is uh, being extended for three years uh, to a full 10-year contract. The proposed annual amount is uh, one million seven hundred and thirty-six thousand, or an increase of about seven hundred thousand over what the original contract was. Uh, uh, approximately a thousand and thirty-five people use the program for emergency financial assistance grants, which are helping people not be homeless. Uh, uh, the problem that we had. Uh, with a positive resource center in discussion was of course their fiscal, uh, their financial situation, which uh, over the last several years had run a major deficit. Uh, reports from the business office uh, monitoring uh, most recently in October, uh, in September, uh, indicated that with the help that they have been receiving from the city and the department, they have turned around their major losses uh, and uh, are now almost even uh, in terms of a balanced budget. Uh, they still have some deliverables uh, that uh, were requested by the uh, BOCC office. And uh, we are recommending that the program be continued 
Uh, it could be, a, and, and the uh, contract does show an extension of three years, but as you know, uh, each of our contracts really are uh, yearly in terms of if we don't have adequate funds or if the organization is not performing well, the contract can actually be terminated. So um, the uh, recommendation that we will be making is that uh, we would recommend approving this contract, continuing their monitoring, and uh, the uh, finance committee would receive a report back regarding the deliverables that BOCC has recommended, and uh, and they will also be wrapping up their audit for the past year. And so uh, we will um, continue maintaining a, uh, uh, a vigilance over their financial status. Uh, it, incidentally, um, the reason for uh, going ahead and approving this is because their program uh, uh, their program uh, evaluation has been very excellent in terms of the work that they've been doing. So uh, we certainly want to uh, maintain a good contract, but it's important to be sure that they continue uh, a good path for fiscal health. Um, there were uh, about six new contracts that were before you. Uh, the uh, first of those contracts are... Uh, Regarding the uh, let me let, let me get the agenda and the uh, program here. The first contract that we uh, are also uh, reviewing and proposing to you is from uh, Data Innovations LLC, and this is to really connect uh, the uh, laboratory data information systems to Epic. Uh, it's a proposed contract from amount of seven hundred and sixty-two thousand six hundred and sixteen dollars. Um, over 2 million specimens are actually performed at the general uh, every year, and this will allow for uh, this data to be transferred uh, directly over to EPIC. Um, it will uh, be a five-year contract. Uh, the first two years of the contract through October 2025 will be putting it into place. And then uh, our current contracts with the current uh, uh, vendors will be ending and uh, the uh, uh, company will then take over for the next three years in terms of having the uh, maintenance for this uh, uh, information system uh, transfer into uh, Epic. Uh, what they call the Epic Beaker, which is where I guess you can look at the EHR and see all of the lab um, that uh, has been run through the system. So that's uh, uh, the first new contract with Data Innovations LLC for $762,616 for five years. The second contract is actually a professional services agreement with Pacific Edge Consulting which will be providing substance use public media campaigns. This is for $540,596 uh, for one year. Uh, this is uh, to do public health education in regards to the availability of treatment for opioid uh, addiction and also the how to use uh, naloxone uh, and and uh, will be, as I said, a one-year contract. Uh, Civic Edge Consulting has apparently done uh, many uh, public media campaigns for uh, San Francisco uh, in uh, different uh, areas, uh, including uh, public health care. Uh, the 
Nick's four contracts are actually an as-needed contract, uh, which will be supporting the phase three of the EPIC uh, EHR implementation. Uh, it is a uh, total proposed contract for each of these four, so you can take them as as-needed vendors, sort of like our nursing uh, uh, situation where as you need nurses and you pull them from various contractors. As you need to uh, uh, have expertise in the EPIC uh, electronic uh, health record modules, this then allows that they have the choice of four different companies in order to pull, say, uh, an expert to help do something with my chart or any of the others that they actually list in your agenda, uh, uh, an entire uh, array of modules that uh, EPIC has. So this provides the backup for it. And uh, they are proposing that uh, UST Continuo Health be one uh, given a contract uh, with a max of $3 million. The um, second one will be a similar contract with 314E Corporation. These contracts are for five years. So you have this bank of four companies for five years able to then um, uh, service us. Uh, the third contractor is Impact Advisors, LLC. And the fourth contract is Vertelligence Incorporated. So uh, those four contracts are for um, the uh, uh, management of these uh, modules for EPIC that will allow our uh, EHR people to select uh, the expertise uh, needed uh, for a particular uh, problem. Um, we then heard uh, two uh, uh, presentations from solicitations or RFPs uh, to give a, well, we actually heard one because the second one uh, had a technical problem. So we will hear uh, solicitation 7482 at our next meeting, which had to do with the um, uh, Black African American Maternal Mental Health Programs. Uh, so we did hear, however, solicitation 7781 and 7782. These are mental health programs that are school-based and are wellness initiatives. Um, contractors were uh, attached to each of these, which are the contracts that will be coming before the uh, Finance Committee and the Commission. And uh, they, these are... Uh, the uh, RFP solicitations that will give us the overall uh, reasons that, uh, for example, one of the contracts has four different vendors. Uh, Wellness Initiative has uh, the uh, 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 ha has one vendor, and, and this way we will know how they fit into the picture of the behavioral health system. So um, it was an informational uh, piece, and we're looking forward to uh, uh, hearing this. The uh, uh, again, uh, as I said, the solicitation for the Black uh, African American Maternal Mental Health at a uh, subsequent meeting. Uh, that ends uh, my report, and perhaps uh, Commissioner Guillermo, who was kind enough to join us uh, in order to make our forum, um, would like to add any items. No, you did an excellent job of, of uh, summarizing the uh, committee meeting. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Sue. Uh, that ends our report.
Right. Well, not only thank you, Commissioner Chow, but I want to acknowledge, I think this report is emblematic of the amount of work and the amount of detail that's involved both on the part of our contracting uh, division, as well as all the vendors we work with. And as you can see, the commission members do great deal of diligent work trying to ask the right questions and ensure that we're being fiscally responsible. So I think that report was was pretty characteristic of the kind of work goes on. It, it's a five minute report, but there's a lot going on behind the scenes. And I, I want to acknowledge that. I think we all are very grateful for to everyone for the efforts that are being made on part of the San Francisco community. So um, everything that um, Commissioner Chow reviewed is on the consent calendar. So is there any public comment on this item? Uh, we're still on, let's see, folks, we're on item nine. If you'd like to make public comment, anybody in the room around the, what Dr. Child has noted and online, anybody uh, press star three, if you'd like to make public comment, no public comment on this item. Are there any commissioner questions or comments? No. All right. Well, then we should go to the Laguna Honda hospital policy. Uh, well, no, I, well, so we'll go to item 10, which is the consent calendar. And, and Commissioner Chow just reviewed all the items on the finance side, and then Commissioner Guillermo can... Okay, so we'll do the finance separate. Okay, so um, you have before you all the contracts that were reviewed by Commissioner Chow, and we would entertain... Oh, actually, I'm sorry. So it's one vote for everything on the consent calendar. So should we present the, um, the Laguna Honda policy that is on the consent calendar yes, I'm, I'm now fine. as well? Yes, please. All right, so then uh, let's let's go ahead and have uh, Commissioner Guillermo present the items on the consent calendar that apply to Laguna Honda. Thank you, President. Uh, excuse me, Green. Um, so uh, as we have been doing uh, in uh, the past several months, uh, we have been reviewing the uh, and uh, asking for approval for uh, revised policies for Laguna Honda as needed for uh, a number of reasons, uh, not just um, uh, limited to the recertification process. Uh, we did uh, recommend for approval to the full commission the set of policies that are before you. Uh, there were some questions uh, that the members of the JCC had uh, of the policies, and we asked that um, the, the edits and the corrections and the additions uh, and the questions that we had asked were answered prior to us making a full recommendation to uh, be placed on the consent calendar. We have subsequently received those uh, and are uh, uh, per the members of the JCC are um, uh, 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 approved uh, the inclusion of uh, this set of policies on the consent calendar for today. All right, so now should we move to approve the consent calendar? Yes. All right, is there a motion? So moved. Second. And I'll uh, see public comment. Anyone in the room would like to make public comment on the, the consent calendar? How about uh, remotely? Anyone like to make comment? Please press star three. No public comment, commissioners. All right, then uh, we'll go to a vote. And Commissioner Chow? Yes. And the other commissioners in the room? Aye. Yes. aye. Great, the consent calendar is approved. And I believe we go back to our regular, regularly scheduled programming, correct? Item six. Item six is a proposed program review UCSF citywide case management program to be relocated at 1263 Mission Street, second floor, San Francisco, California, 94103. And we'll have Michelle Ruggles, who's the director of the DPH business office present. Welcome. And Ms. Ruggles, before you begin, if I just may note, this is a discussion item. There's no action on this. Yeah. Thanks. I haven't been here without, can you hear me? 
I don't know if I'm quiet or yelling, but so I'm Michelle Ruggles. I'm the director of the DPH business office. And one of the units within our business office is the business office of contract compliance, which you hear is BOCC. And one of the things that BOCC does is make sure that we are in compliance with the city's chapter 79 of the administrative code, which is the um, citizens right to know act of 1998, which we adopted as a DPH good neighbor policy. You'll also hear it often referred to as Prop I, because that was the ordinance letter, but it's not correct, chapter 79. But anyway, um, so, our, so chapter 79, and therefore our policy requires that for certain city funded projects that meet the criteria that citizens and neighbors are given the right to share their concerns about the city project for DPH, the project may be something that comes here, or the action may be something that goes to another body to approve. Like if a building is purchased for DPH, real estate takes it to the board and that satisfies the action. So one of the common places or times that we bring to you to hear is a relocation of a city contracted vendor. So this can apply to city contracted vendors or DPH. But um, so a project or a relocation, if it's changing the use of what the relocation of what the site was used before funding and uh, that could trigger this. And so it was triggered today and that's why we're here specifically for um, Citywide case management, which is a program or a set of programs under UC that DPH contracts with, and they are relocating all their programs that are currently at 982 Mission Street to 1263 Mission Street. So, like um, Mr. Morowitz said, this is a hearing. There's no action today that's subject to health commission approval. I'm joined today by Dr. Mitsuishi, who is the director of the citywide case management program, as well as uh, Jerna Reyes, who's the director of the business office of contract compliance. So knocking on wood, this has been a very not controversial item. Um, and so, but they're here if you have other questions besides me going over how we complied with the process. But essentially the biggest piece of this requirement is that we post signage 30 days before the hearing and this is the hearing so um, and then also our dph policy adds in a second meeting that already happened which is a community meeting so we posted our signage on november 3rd and in your packet there's an attachment two and three are copies of the signage and then attachment five is a photograph that we posted the signage. The, um, if you post signage on the building in the 30 days, you're not required to mail uh, flyers to the neighboring to the neighbors' businesses. Um, and so we didn't do that mailing. If you Google the site, there's not actually a ton around right around there. But uh, the citywide case management staff did walk around the neighborhood and where there was four open businesses who they spoke to, brought the flyer. One of the flyer, we had the signage, which has to be a certain size, 30 by 30, but then we also posted, it's another attachment, how to contact the health commission. So that was part of 
That's what they distributed. They did not get any comments or concerns raised. And then the community meeting was held on November 15th by the citywide staff and the BOCC staff leading that, and no one showed up. And nobody provided comments to citywide case management or to Jerna Reyes, the director of BOCC, who's named on the um, poster. So um, I realized as I was presenting or as I was preparing that you have an attachment one, which is a summary that I think I didn't put the most recent, um, the updated version. And so there's two empty boxes in there. And just to fill in the square footage of the new box of the new building is 28,570 rentable square feet. And then the hours of operation, 8.30 to 4.30, Monday through Friday. Um, in discussing the move with the staff, it seems like they're actually going to improve the area with lighting and whatnot. But um, if you have questions about the program or if you want to wait till after, if there's public, however you want to do it, to see if there's public comment. Um, like I said, Dr. Um, Mitsushi is here. If you'd like to have her come up and talk about the program or any process. Thank you. Is there any public comment on this item? Is anyone in the room uh, here to make public comment on this item? All right. I don't see anyone. Uh, how about remotely? Would anyone like to make public comment? There are no, um, no hands for public comment. Remotely. Right. And are there any commissioner comments or questions on this item? I'd be um, just curious to hear from uh, the doctor what this what the move will accomplish for uh, the organization. Good afternoon, commissioners. Good afternoon. Uh, yeah, the the program necessitated the move because we were losing the lease on our existing building, uh, so really it was an operational necessity. And so the square footage is slightly increased, which is really wonderful because our program uh, provides services that are in somewhat high demand mm -hmm. uh, from the city. And so we are really, you know, I think this is a great opportunity for us to have an expanded capacity. I've had the uh, privilege to work with uh, Citywide and the, the staff and what amazing work Citywide does and have been to the, the current or former um, building and I'm glad to know that more square footage will be available for the for the amazing work that they do for the community and that the staff hopefully will be a little more comfortable um, than uh, they might have been before uh, you had a wonderful space you created a wonderful space before but um, I'm hopeful that it's going to be even better so I look forward to seeing you at our new space look forward to being there thank you any other commissioner questions comments well what a wonderful way to um, close out that item. And I'm delighted you have so much experience. It's a great organization. organization. It sounds indeed that it is. Thank you very much. Yeah. Wonderful. So um, the next item is the DPH, HIV, V, and STI update. And you know, I was thinking how incredible it is that you're presenting on very close to the day of the 25th anniversary of the first World AIDS Day hard to believe 25 years have gone by. And I think, you know, as you present this information, which is so encouraging, 
um, it, it it's really a testament to how far we've come and how San Francisco has been in so many ways the, the leader in the world for this work. So the presenters, I'll just um, read your names, are Stephanie Cohen, Dr. Cohen, who's the director of the STI Prevention and Control, Sharon Pipkin, who's an epidemiologist, Tron Nguyen, who is an epidemiologist manager, and Aisha Underwood, acting co-director of the Community Health Equity and Promotion. So we, we've been looking forward to this presentation. So please begin. Dr. Cohn, before you begin, commissioners, the, um, the pre presentation, I've worked with them to try to get it down to about 30 minutes and just know that it may be a little longer due to some responses to questions. But if you could hold your questions until the end, it will help them get through what they need to do and then we can go from there. Everyone's okay with that. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Good afternoon, commissioners. Thank you so much for the warm introduction. I am Stephanie Cohen. I'm the director of the HIV STI prevention section in the disease prevention and control branch, and I'll be presenting an annual HIV STI update along with my colleagues, Sharon Pipkin, Trang Nguyen, Naisha, and Naisha Underwood. Um, next slide. We will share two data presentations today to show current HIV and STI trends, and then two program presentations to describe how we are addressing disparities through an integrated syndemic patient-centered approach. A syndemic approach is grounded in the understanding that the epidemics of HIV and STI alongside hepatitis C and overdose interact with each other and are interrelated, and by those interactions, increase the adverse effects on the communities. A syndemic response requires an integrated, multi-sectoral, collaborative, and holistic approach that we apply for our work in SDI and HIV prevention and care. Next slide. All of the presenters today work in the Population Health Division, which sits here in the Health Department under the leadership of our Division Director and Health Officer, Dr. Susan Phillip. Next slide. And as a reminder, this is the current structure of our population health division. You'll be hearing from staff in the branches outlined in the red boxes from ARCHES, Disease Prevention and Control, and Community Health Equity and Promotion. And I will also share uh, briefly some up, um, updates from our Getting to Zero Consortium, which is organized in Bridge HIV. I'll now turn it over to Sharon Pipkin, who is joining remotely, and we'll um, start with our HIV EPI updates. Good afternoon, commissioners and staff. I'd like to just um, check my volume is okay? Yes, you sound great. Great. Uh, my name is Sharon Pipkin. I'm an epidemiologist in Population Health Division, Arches Branch. Next slide. Next slide. For HIV, we begin today with trends in new diagnoses, deaths, and prevalence. Looking at the red line representing new diagnoses, we see that the decline in new infections has stalled. Diagnoses declined 28% from 2017 to 2019, and only 12% from 2019 to 2022. In terms of prevalence, at the end of 2022, there were 15,537 persons living with HIV, represented by the lavender bar. We have an aging population of persons with HIV with 73% over 50 years old and 41% over 60 years old. This aging population of persons with HIV also informs the mortality trends that we're observing, shown by the yellow line. 
you see that deaths gradually increased since 2016 and HIV related causes continued to decline while deaths from overdoses increased from 10% in 2010 to 2013 to 18% in 2018 to 2021. Next slide. While we look at diagnosis rates, which take into account the underlying population sizes, by racial, ethnic, and gender groups, there continue to be disparities in new HIV infections. In 2022, for the first time, there were higher rates of new HIV diagnoses in Latino men, shown by the solid green line, than Black men. And rates in both of these groups were substantially higher than in white or Asian Pacific Islander men. Although lower than Latino and Black men, rates in Black women, shown by the dashed purple lines, were higher than white and API men, and also women of other racial ethnic groups. I'd like to note that rates for some racial ethnic gender groups are too small and may be unstable to be released separately. So population denominators are not available for trans women and trans men. Next slide. As I mentioned earlier, overall, there's been a 12% decline in new diagnoses from 2019 to 2022. And by select populations in that same time period, New diagnoses decline for whites down by 22%, blacks 17%, all persons who injected drugs by 9%, persons who experienced homelessness 13%, persons experiencing homelessness were 17% of 2022 diagnoses. And Latinx persons are one group where new diagnoses increased by 10% with three quarters of 2022 Latinx diagnoses being Latino MSM who don't inject drugs. In another population of interest, towards the bottom of this figure, trans women annual diagnoses are largely stable through this time period. Next slide. For new diagnoses in the last five years, we further analyzed outcomes such as linkage to care and viral suppression indications. Here, each color represents cases diagnosed that year. Looking at this middle group of bars showing linkage to care, in 2022, 90% of persons were linked to care within one month of their diagnosis. And the percentage of virally suppressed persons within six months of diagnosis has improved to 80% in 2022, which is the highest since the year 2018. Next slide. Turning to viral suppression among persons living with HIV, here we show viral suppression rates in the last three years, starting with the year 2020 shown in the blue bars and 2022 in the yellow bars. We focus primarily on demographic and risk groups that had lower viral suppression than the overall rate for 2022, which was 73% virally suppressed. Now these groups were women, blacks, people aged 25 to 49 years old, persons who injected drugs, those who acquired HIV through heterosexual contact, persons born outside the U.S., and persons experiencing homelessness. Although these are the groups with lower percentages virally suppressed, 
One improvement to note is that among persons experiencing homelessness, viral suppression increased from 20% in 2020 to 52% in 2022. And this improvement may be attributable in part to persons experiencing homelessness getting re-engaged to medical care after the first two years of the COVID pandemic. We saw evidence of increasing proportions of persons experiencing homelessness engaging in care from 33% in 2020 to 70% in 2022. Next slide. In summary, the rate of decline in new HIV diagnosis has stalled and infections are plateauing. High levels of rapid linkage to care and viral suppression are occurring, but disparities remain. And the concerning trends in HIV that are highlighted include an increase in diagnoses among Latinx people, particularly MSM, the lack of decline in annual diagnoses in trans women, the continued high proportion of new diagnoses in persons experiencing homelessness, and the increase in accidental drug overdose deaths. In the next section, you'll see what's reflected currently in STI trends and epidemiology. Thanks, Trang. Hello, commissioners. My name is Trang Nguyen, and I lead the STI epidemiology surveillance and program evaluation section in ARCHES. Next slide, please. Overall in San Francisco, annual incidence rates for chlamydia in the orange line gonorrhea in green, and early syphilis in red have decreased between 2017 and 2022. The steep decline in 2020 is attributed to reduced screening access and possibly smaller sexual networks. Rates of chlamydia and gonorrhea have increased between 2020 and 2022, but are still lower compared with 2019, while rates of syphilis have continued to decline since 2019. Given our limited time, we will not be presenting data across all STIs by all demographics, but do, we do want to address President Green's advanced question regarding trends by race ethnicity for chlamydia and syphilis. For chlamydia, gonorrhea, and early syphilis by race ethnicity, both citywide and among males only, the trends in rates, in rates by race ethnicity are similar to what is shown here. Next slide, please. Compared to other jurisdictions, San Francisco experiences relatively high rates. The graph on the upper left shows San Francisco in the orange dotted line, with a higher gonorrhea case rate over five years compared to all of California and the US, as well as when compared to Los Angeles and New York City. This trend is also true for chlamydia and syphilis, which are not shown. The lower right graph shows San Francisco in the orange bars. For primary and secondary syphilis rates in the left set of bars, and early syphilis rates in the right set of bars, San Francisco has the highest rates compared to California, LA, New York City, and the US. Next slide. Increased syphilis among females and congenital syphilis remain an area of concern. The CDC graph on the left shows national increases in syphilis among pregnant women and congenital syphilis since 2017. The graph on the right shows the increasing number of congenital syphilis in California since 2013. Next slide. We've seen increases in San Francisco in reported female syphilis and congenital cases since 2014. Given the goal of preventing congenital syphilis, we monitor syphilis among people who could become pregnant, which includes persons whose reported sex at birth is female 
or if that information is missing, people whose gender identity is reported to be female or trans male. Here in red bars are the annual totals of female syphilis cases since 2014. Data for 2023 are through the third quarter. In 2022, there were 186 female syphilis cases, 18 of whom were pregnant. Of the 18 pregnant cases, six were people experiencing homelessness, four reported meth use, and one reported heroin use. The blue line on the graph represents the number of congenital syphilis classes, uh, cases. By the end of September 2023, there were three reported congenital syphilis cases, but we know as of today there is a fourth case so far in the fourth quarter. In the supplemental slides we provided, page seven reflects the proportion of female syphilis cases by race ethnicity. Latinx female cases were a lower proportion of all female syphilis cases for all stages in 2022 at 21% than they have been in recent years. Next slide, please. While the MPOX response originated with the communicable disease group, we learned through investigations in 2022 that the primary mode of transmission in the US and in San Francisco is close contact with sexual partners. Therefore, the responsibility for MPOX prevention, control, and surveillance transitioned to the relevant STI groups within ARCHES, the Disease Prevention and Control Branch, and the Community Health and Equity Branch. This transition was completed in September of this year. Next slide. After the first wave ended in late 2022, there were sporadic MPOX cases. But an increase since July 1, 2023, resulted in 50 cases reported through October 31st of this year. The vast majority of cases are males who primarily report sex with other men. Last month in November, there have so far been an additional 12 reported cases. San Francisco has the highest MPOX case rate in California. Next slide. We have seen disparities by race, ethnicity for MPOX. The graph shows the San Francisco population by race, ethnicity in gray bars with the proportion of MPOX cases by race, ethnicity in the blue bars. The red arrow points to the two blue bars where the proportion of MPOX cases is higher. 28% of MPOX cases have been Hispanic Latino compared to 16% of San Francisco residents who are Hispanic Latino. And 45% of MPOX cases are white compared to 39% of San Francisco residents who are white. Next slide, please. Vaccination remains a critical component of our disease response activities. Vaccinated cases have experienced less severe symptoms and have been less likely to go to the emergency room or be hospitalized. Next slide. By October 31st of this year, 31,501 San Francisco res residents received one dose of the MPOX vaccine. Of those, 59% also received their second dose, which completes the vaccine series. Next slide. Another priority population given the disparities we see in their STI rates is the adolescents and young adults who are ages 15 through 24. Next slide, please. While, sorry, yeah. While rates have declined, disparities persist both by race, ethnicity, and gender. Here we highlight trends in chlamydia rates among the youth by race, ethnicity between 2018 and 2022. Youth who identified as Black African American, Pacific Islander, or Hispanic persistently experience higher rates compared to white, Asian, or multiracial youth. Next slide, please. 
Disparities are additionally seen by age. We focus here on chlamydia rates among females because they experience higher rates than males. We present the data by race ethnicity across the top and the age group listed down the left side. You can see reflected in longer blue bars that the younger age groups experience higher rates than the older age groups within each race ethnicity group and that black African young females in the upper left experience the higher rates, highest rates. The same pattern is true for gonorrhea that is not shown here. Next slide. Finally, while we are always monitoring trends and rates in the epidemiology of STIs in San Francisco, we have been trying to disentangle reasons for changes in trends given recent known influences. Next slide, please. The known and perceived impacts of COVID and MPOX on healthcare seeking, health services, and sexual behavior or networks have muddled how to interpret recent declines in case counts and rates. Here you see at the arrow on the left, the steep decline in citywide chlamydia cases in quarter two of 2020, immediately following the first cases of COVID in San Francisco in March 2020. Cases slowly increased as screening services opened back, services opened back up and people got in close contact again. Next slide. We identified our first MPOX case in May of 2022 at the second arrow. And then at the third arrow, we, the San Francisco Department of Public Health, released guidelines for recommending doxycycline post-exposure prophylaxis, referred to as doxypep, for STI prevention in October of 2022. Next slide, please. After the introduction of MPOX and doxypep, we have seen outlined by the box steady quarterly decreases in total reported chlamydia cases. Next slide, please. That same pattern of decreasing cases is not seen among cis females, among whom there were and are very few MPOX cases and for whom doxypep is not recommended. Next slide. But among, among men who have sex with men, both experiencing the highest rates of MPOX and for whom doxypep is recommended, the quarterly declines are seen and are even more notable in Q2 and Q3 of 2023, the last two orange bars in the graph. Next slide. For gonorrhea, there were declines soon after COVID, MPOX, and doxypep were introduced, but there was an uptick in quarter three, the last bar on the right. This was seen among men who have sex with men, shown in this graph, as well as overall and among cis females, not shown. Next slide. For total syphilis, we highlight here the data among men who have sex with men, where there, again, is a notable decrease in quarterly reported cases since MPOX and doxypep were introduced. Next slide, please. In summary, syphilis rates are still higher among cis women, but seem to be plateauing since 2021. Elimination of congenital syphilis remains our objective. Ongoing MPOX vaccination promotion and education are warranted, and continued disparities reflect needed efforts to promote STI screening and education for BIPOC youth. And then finally, recent STI patterns since the introduction of MPOX and doxypep will be monitored and evaluated. Thank you. Good afternoon, commissioners. I am Naisha Underwood, CHEPS co-acting director, and I'll be discussing um, some community efforts um, to address and ultimately we hope turn the curve on the disparities or some of the disparities um, discussed during the EPI presentation. 
So ending the epidemic refers to our overarching cross division and department community informed work to address the syndemics of HIV, STI, FC, and overdose. The approach is based on the following eight core principles on the slide. And there's a living document called the San Francisco ETE plan um, that will guide all of our prevention and care work over the next 10 years. This work is funded by grants through our federal CDC partners, um, which is Centers for Disease Control, our California Department of Public Health, and the city and county um, general fund, as well as HRSA. Next slide, please. Next slide, sorry about that. <laughs> um, so a part of the ending the epidemic efforts are um, the health access point model. So we have previously shared our HAP vision. Um, the HAPs provide low barrier clinical and community services and welcoming spaces free, of, free from stigma. The goal of the health access point is to ensure that all San Franciscans have equitable access to high quality HCV, HIV, STI, um, prevention care and treatment services, as well as harm reduction and overdose prevention services. Next slide, please. So the Community Health Equity and Promotion Branch funds seven health access points fo focusing on the following communities on the slide. Um, although the health access points are population focused, no one is turned away from accessing services um, at any of the health access points. I also wanted to note that disparities were a factor in determining the amount of funding for each of the health access points. So the Latinx and black um, health access points received about half of the total funding allocated for the health access point. The HAPS launched in July of 2023. There was a planning phase before that. Um, we are currently collecting data from the HAPS around service delivery. Um, the initial data submission just happened this past Friday, and we will have more outcome data to share in the coming year. Next slide, please. So some of our efforts um, focused in Latinx community to address the disparities seen in the data. Um, we, are, we are funding uh, community advisory programs, which um, for the Latinx communities, GMC, G, GM Consulting, um, with the goal of providing CHEP with recommendations on how to address the most pressing health disparities affecting the local Latinx community. Um, CHEP is also focusing on strengthening collaborations with our funded HELP HAP programs and other community partners such as the Latino Task Force and UCSF collaboration to support the work needed um, to address the increasing disparity in the number of new HIV infections among Latino gay men and other MSM in San Francisco. So we're working really closely with IFR and Mission Neighborhood Health Center as a part of our health access point efforts um, to increase the client's access to more comprehensive screening options beyond HIV and STI uh, act, um, testing. Additionally, we are supporting our UCSF um, and Latino Task Force partnership in their efforts to offer HIV testing and STI screening at the Unidos Unsalud site at 24th and Cap in the heart of the Mission uh, District. Next slide, please. Likewise, we have some efforts focused in the Black African American community. Um, we, because our BIPOC youth um, have the highest 
um, chlamydia and gonorrhea rates, uh, particularly Latinx and Black African American youth. We have partnered with Third Street <clears throat> Youth Clinic, um, where we fund a full-time health educator, um, and we also provide workshops and presentations. We have created an access point for youth to order um, self-STI self tests on the Don't Think No platform, and I'll talk about that a little bit in a coming slide. Some of the other um, efforts in the Black African American community are the Mobile Contingency Management Program that is jointly funded by um, HIV Health Services and CHEP. This is a street-based outreach and brief interventions for people experiencing homelessness in the Bayview. Um, it's focused on BIPOC communities who smoke fentanyl. And then some of the other resources provided by this effort are incentives, overdose prevention services, ongoing counseling, and drug testing services. Um, we are also funding uh, three community advisory programs focused on the Black African American community. Um, they provide expand, expanded community engagement and continuous and meaningful dialogue to address HIV in the Black African American community. And then lastly, um, we have a, a Black African American Health Access Point led by Rafiki Coalition, and they also have um, some partners in that. Next slide, please. So our youth are an important priority population for HIV and STI prevention. We support youth and young adults through a variety of activities. Our Don't Think No home testing program, which I spoke about briefly um, in the previous slide, provides low barrier access to free and confidential chlamydia and gonorrhea screening with a focus on young women of color. Um, our Young Adult HAP, which is led by Lyric, is providing STI, HIV, Hep C screening, um, and an array of other services. Um, oh, and providing syringe services through Homeless Youth Alliance and supporting health access at the Chippy Clinics. Our Black African American Health Initiative, STI Committee, um, pulls together partners to think through how to bring youth back to the clinics and promote home testing programs and empowerment overall. Our Youth United Through Health Education Program, which you see here on the screen, um, led a youth storytelling project with a focus on empowerment and youth development. The participants developed videos about sexual health and identity to share with other youth. These youth videos are currently, they currently live on the city clinic's youth page. Next slide, please. We also have efforts focused um, for people who use drugs and people experiencing homelessness. So we fund a health access point called The Lobby, which is led by um, Ward 86 in collaboration with Glide and Alliance Health Project. Their population of focus also excuse me, also includes people who engage in sex work. Um, CHEP has a team of folks called, we call them WISHES. It's the Wellness Initiative for Sexual Health Equity um, and Safer Use. So this team actually supports and provides capacity building and training for services um, for people who use drugs and, and experiencing homelessness. 
across all of our health access points. So they provide those services listed there on the slide. And we also very, um, partner very closely with our Office of Overdose Prevention and Behavioral Health Services. Next slide, please. Uh, lastly, I'll talk a little bit about our community-based um, impox prevention efforts. So CHEP in collaboration with partners have been essential to ensuring community has been informed about impox and how to access low barrier vaccination. For the past year and a half, we've created videos <clears throat> in various languages to feature, feature community members and, prior, and prioritize the LBGTQ community um, that provide health, health information on symptoms and how impox does and does not spread We've, con we've contracted with a social media consultant to increase messaging um, across social media platforms. And then we've also developed a survey that offered the state insight on people's vaccine adherence um, during the Folsom Street Fair. And I'll turn it over to um, Stephanie Kahn. Thank you. Okay, next slide. Hi again. Um, I will start with some updates from our Getting to Zero Consortium. Next slide. Getting to Zero is a multi-sectoral coalition that was founded in 2013, which is built on a collective impact framework. The current pillar committees in Getting to Zero include a prep committee, rapid and retention, committee focused on people experiencing homelessness, and one on HIV and aging. Over the past decade, Getting to Zero has been responsive to the most immediate challenges and focuses on issues and populations where we are seeing disparities. Some key current areas of focus are overdose prevention, as well as tracking new products like the injectable medications for HIV prevention and treatment and doxycycline post-exposure prophylaxis. Our Getting to Zero consortium meeting tomorrow in honor of World AIDS Day will focus on a discussion of mental health and HIV. Next slide. Now I'll turn to the work um, of our disease prevention and control branches, HIV and STI prevention section. I'll describe our programmatic efforts to address disparities and to equitably implement innovative new tools in sexual health. This slide focuses on the work of our LINCS team, which is central to the work of getting to zero and ending the epidemics. This team is composed of disease intervention specialists known as DIS, and navigators who work to link individuals with HIV and STIs to prevention, treatment, and care. The learning pyramid on the left shows the vast array of skills that our DIS to develop to do this complex work. In 2021, the team provided navigation services to 81 individuals living with HIV, almost 60% of whom were experiencing homelessness, and of those, 57% became virally suppressed. This work is helping contribute to those improvements in virologic suppression among people experiencing homelessness that Sharon Pipkin shared in her presentation. The team also worked with hundreds of patients diagnosed with HIV and syphilis, including 18 pregnant people with syphilis. And as Dr. Wen shared, the team has taken on the work of MPOX case investigation and contact tracing and has served um, as of October 56 individuals diagnosed with MPOX. Next slide. A major focus of our program and of the LINCS team is the prevention of congenital syphilis. This is an um, area of great national concern as well as local concern. 
and the Biden administration has recently established a federal task force on syphilis and congenital syphilis. Locally, we have had a citywide congenital syphilis prevention task force for several years, which includes partners from City Clinic, Lynx, Maternal Child Adolescent Health, Whole Person Integrated Care, Team Lilly, ZSFG, Emergency Department and Urgent Care, and other key partners. In 2022, through this collaborative work, we averted approximately 50% of potential congenital syphilis cases. The um, task force is focused on many programmatic initiatives, including um, hosting congenital syphilis case review boards to identify missed opportunities, developing workflows to increase syphilis screening, making um, optimizations to our EPIC electronic health record, um, maintaining a weekly multidisciplinary pregnancy loss to follow-up meeting, and increasing provider knowledge um, around sexual health and syphilis screening. And this includes promotion of the new recommendations, uh, President Green, that you were inquiring about, that now recommends syphilis screening three times in pregnancy, including at delivery. Um, and we do think that this recommendation has had an impact. Unfortunately, many of our um, congenital syphilis cases and patients who are pregnant with um, and are diagnosed with syphilis at delivery because they have not received any prenatal care. Next slide. Our training and technical assistance efforts extend beyond congenital syphilis. We work closely with clinics and providers around the city um, who serve patients and populations disproportionately impacted by HIV and STIs to increase their capacity to provide evidence-based, culturally affirming care. We develop and disseminate guidelines and protocols and work with um, important clinical sites including and community sites, including places like navigation centers, our MXM clinic, and the newly formed health access points. We also provide expert clinical consultation to providers throughout San Francisco who have questions about prevention, diagnosis, and management of HIV and STIs. Next slide. San Francisco City Clinic is a nationally recognized center of excellence and remains an integral part of our citywide getting to zero efforts. And we have shared with you all a separate one pager highlighting some of San Francisco City Clinic's work in 2022. Um, several years ago, the clinic was awarded a four year competitive grant, one of only 19 jurisdictions across the country to receive this award to optimize HIV prevention and sexual health clinics. And with that funding, we have been able to um, implement a number of things to optimize HIV prevention services, both at the clinic and throughout the San Francisco Health Network. We built a PrEP registry in EPIC to support um, retention and PrEP care. We have scaled up express visits to increase our capacity, improve patient experience, and decrease visit times. We have implemented long-acting injectable PrEP, an innovative new tool in HIV prevention, we initiated Medi-Cal billing to help with fiscal sustainability and have enhanced community engagement through a collaboration with Perceda Eyes, um, which resulted in the beautiful mural that was painted on the building um, last year. Next slide. Both at City Clinic and through our TA and training program, we work to optimize the delivery of PrEP throughout San Francisco. Um, next slide. And with these efforts, we have seen year upon year increases in the proportion of men who have sex with men seen at the clinic 
who report that they are currently taking PrEP. And we've seen these increases across racial ethnic groups, although some disparities do remain. These um, proportions on PrEP far surpass national data, which show that about 30% of PrEP eligible patients are on PrEP and only 11% of Black African Americans um, nationwide. Next slide. By implementing new technologies like long-acting injectable PrEP, we are um, addressing disparities. This slide shows the proportion of city clinic PrEP patients by gender on the left and race ethnicity on the right, with the orange bars showing patients who are receiving, all, all of our patients on PrEP, and the blue bars represent those who are receiving long-acting injectables. And you can see that our through our um, LA program, we're reaching populations, including trans women and cis women, as well as Black and Latinx patients. Next slide. The last intervention I want to highlight is doxycycline post-exposure prophylaxis. This is a highly effective new STI prevention strategy that reduces the risk of STIs by almost 70% in men who have sex with men and trans women. City Clinic was one of four um, sites in the randomized controlled trial that demonstrated the efficacy of this intervention. And in October 2022, SFDPH became the first jurisdiction in the U.S. to release citywide guidance um, to assess if this intervention is having an impact on citywide STI incidents. And through Getting to Zero's new product initiative, we're working to monitor uptake to identify and address disparities um, and assess um, impact. Two important sites of delivery for DoxyPep, um, President Green, that you asked about, are both HIV care clinics as well as PrEP programs, as DoxyPep and HIV PrEP can be offered concurrently. Next slide. Um, in summary, social determinants continue to drive the HIV and STI epidemics. We implement data-informed programming to address inequities. We have some very promising new tools in both HIV and STI prevention, but intensive efforts are needed to ensure equitable access. You have heard today about the disproportionate impact of MPOX and HIV on Latinx MSM, and this is an area of concern and focus for us. The reasons for these trends are complex, and I think we're still, we still have more to learn. But we do think that stigma, lack of access to prevention prior to arrival in San Francisco, lack of insurance, fears due to immigration status, and language barriers all play a role, among other factors. Um, lastly, our partnerships with our health systems, our community-based organizations, and our newly formed PAPs are core elements of our response and are critical to reaching Latinx residents as well as other populations where we are seeing persistent disparities. Thanks for your attention. I think all four of us are happy to answer questions. Thank you so much for that incredible presentation. What an amazing enterprise. We'll, we'll go to public comment. Yes, um, Eduardo or Andrew, could you all turn on the bottom two uh, light switches so we can uh, get a little more light in here? Thank you in advance. Is there anyone in the room who would like to make public comment on this amazing presentation? All right, uh, and there's no one online either who would like to make public comment. All right, we'll go to commissioner comments and questions. Oh, <laughs> thank you. So I, I just, I don't have any any questions. I just want to uh, comment on the overall presentation. Um, it just, um, 
one to congratulate you on uh, really being able to keep the issues of uh, HIV and, and STI, you know, prominent and, you know, very much um, in the public, you know, sort of mindset, uh, because it's so easy with everything else that uh, that we're being confronted with for folks to think and and because there's no there's not a lot of visible you know, uh, um, signs of it in the general public, you know, they're, they're really limited. I think that it's really important for us to really be able to continue uh, uh, to keep the agenda that we have had, particularly in San Francisco with all the success uh, in the innovation and just the reputation that we have uh, to uh, keep these issues front forward. And then particularly the focus on health equity and the differentiation uh, across all the different demographics. I think that that's really key. I mean, it's very surprising. Uh, well, maybe not as surprising, but very concerning uh, re relative to the Latinx population. Uh, and then with the young, with the rates of STI in uh, young women, I think that that's something that, you know, we really need to be paying attention to. So again, I wanna thank you for being able to um, make this presentation uh, something, you know, a lot of slides, a lot of data, uh, but that's what you need, right, in order to be able to make the case for how and why uh, we need to keep um, our sort of our eyes on the prize. So thank you. Uh, I want to echo what Commissioner Guillermo said and also about the data and the slides. Thank you and congratulate you on finding a way to uh, present the information in such a clear manner. That is not always the case, uh, you know, in any uh, circumstance, but really uh, thank you for the work that you've done on that. And it's been um, very successful. And um, the the work that you're doing across these platforms and across the city uh, is amazing. So thank you so much and congratulations once again, and look forward to continuing to hear about your work. Well, I can't say it better than my fellow commissioners did. We're in awe of your work and all you've accomplished, the way you've defined the problems, the way you're setting uh, out to solve them. And we are really grateful for your work. You are really, um, really um, among the many divisions of the Department of Public Health that make us so proud and have such an impact on the population of San Francisco. So we're, we're very grateful. I think Director Colfax also wants to say a few words about your amazing work. Yep. Thank you. Just one, one more uh, point. I think the, the other thing that I wanted to, uh, to, to mention is the partnerships that we have created or that you all have created with the community-based providers uh, and others that really supplement and augment uh, the leadership that the department has shown uh, in this area. I think it's really a model for the kinds of partnerships that we can do across many different uh, health concerns, um, public health concerns. Uh, that we have, not just in San, San Francisco, uh, but across the nation. And so again, I think that, um, you know, and it's been, you know, over decades, right? But, it, and, and that's how long it takes. Uh, but really this is, I think, uh, an exemplary uh, way for the department to show mm -hmm. how effective those partnerships can be. I agree, and the creativity that you've shown, that you're showing in the partnerships that you make is also noteworthy and uh, the leadership within the community that you're supporting and expanding and building through the partnerships is also uh, quite useful in and of itself. So thank you so much. Uh, yeah, Director. 
Yeah, maybe, oh. maybe before Dr. Kopax, if I could just ask uh, one or two questions. Uh, <clears throat> I, uh, and I'm really pleased that the integration of STI and, and uh, HIV have really worked out and uh, and that we're all working together. And, uh, and to see that the uh, levels of uh, gonorrhea and syphilis are dropping, uh, which uh, was not true several years ago as, as the uh, uh, extensive data and, and the very uh, massive report that you put together uh, have uh, shown. Uh, I was just wondering why we have such a very high proportion of the uh, of these uh, disorders uh, compared to the entire United States. I, uh, does uh, does anyone know that uh, we have sort of a different environment or something, or that uh, I, I, so so what is the cause? Like you've shown that syphilis is so much higher here than California and uh, the U.S. and uh, do we do something different? Thanks for the challenging question. Um, I mean, I think that one thing we know in infectious disease epidemiology is once you have a high prevalence in a network, it sort of persists. And so I think part of it is that we um, have a lot of STIs in our community. And then that means anytime you're exposed to someone, you're more likely to be exposed to an STI. Um, I think that we um, have also, you know, as you know, we're one of the jurisdictions that was hit hardest and earliest by HIV. And I think that the conditions that were in San Francisco that um, put us in a situation where we had a um, more profound HIV epidemic are some of the same kind of things that, that put us at risk for um, STI rates. But I think the good news is that we have a strong collaboration throughout our health department and with our community, and we have some evidence-based tools to address to address this epidemic. All right. Um, is there, um, on, as I was uh, looking at this, uh, you've uh, noted that uh, you believe that the HIV numbers have plateaued, uh, but uh, in Previous uh, presentations, we've talked about, I think, both in, in, in the SDI and, and the HIVs that we're still having, or that we were having uh, difficulty in trying to influence the younger uh, generation. Is that still true? I, I didn't see age breakdown here as much as uh, we've had in the past in terms of, uh, and, and it doesn't look like we were necessarily, maybe I missed it, uh, the presentation was uh, so uh, 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 rich that uh, we are uh, trying to reach adolescents. I mean, I was very surprised about the Latino rising, uh, rates rising. So is there, is there some uh, work being done the adolescents or we're uh, finding that uh, this is now under control? Sharon, do you want to address um, new HIV diagnoses by age group quickly? Sure. And then maybe I can also make some broader comments. Sure, thanks. So yes, while we um, did not include as much age-related um, uh, information on new diagnoses today, but if you uh, reference the uh, 2022 EPI annual report in section one, you'll see that um, uh, by age, um, new diagnoses are still concentrated in the, um, primarily in the 30 to 
year uh, age group followed by the 25 to 29 year olds. And then in the young adults, um, 18 to 24, um, it's it's um, ranged from 10% um, to 12, 14%. Uh, um, and recently in the last year, it's 12% um, of new diagnoses. So is there a campaign on that? Because you didn't really show that. I mean, we, we were, of course, focusing uh, on the uh, rising leukemia rate and all, but what, what about are we continuing to work on adolescents and special programs? I think from the standpoint of HIV, one of our HAPs is a youth-focused HAP. That is, um, we're working with Lyric on that health access point for youth. And I think we all you know, strongly believe that we have to maintain a focus on youth because they are coming into their sexual debut without necessarily having received prevention education. And so it's always a population that's entering um, the, the networks and that we need to have you know, ongoing efforts to reach. And, and certainly on the STI side, this has always been an important population of focus for us. I, I don't think it's why our new HIV diagnoses are plateauing in terms of the rate of decline, but I do think it's a very important population of focus for us. So, so, so I think on, on, on a basis of uh, a future presentation, we should be looking at this uh, younger age also in terms of uh, letting us know how, how successful we are doing with the uh, group, because as, as I think you've said, th this is where uh, much of the younger and much of the new infection is coming from. And I know that we had talked about trying to really uh, reduce that. And that might be uh, a focus that we'd like to hear about. But uh, certainly I, I join my fellow uh, commissioners in commending uh, this uh, report. I, I, I requested the full report too, because it is so rich in data. I really want to thank uh, everybody in this division for the work that they've done. Thank you. I, I just wondered whether some of the hot reporting is due to the fact that you are so excellent at what you do, that you probably track cases better than a lot of other organizations in, in um, this in country. And also because you have done such a great job of destigmatizing that it may be that your numbers seem worse because you're actually doing better. So I, I wonder if that's a component as well. And I think it's a probably partly due to that as well. So we'll go to Director Colfax. Thank you. Thank you, President Green and Commissioners. Hi, everybody. Um, just wanted to build on the comment about partnerships and particularly national partnerships because this work really is recognized nationally. And I get often get texts from colleagues that I used to work more closely with who say, oh, one of your team members from the Department of Public Health is presenting, and as usual, San Francisco is doing an amazing job, and we're all learning from San Francisco. I mean, I'm summarizing, but you know that's not infrequent that I get that when there are major national meetings that um, focus on HIV and STD. So just to emphasize that, and you know, I think the other part uh, with the presentation, you know, the team was. Um, maybe a little too humble, particularly around doxypep, because I just wanted to emphasize the breakthrough nature of the doxypep trial um, that City Clinic um, was, a, was a major site for and that uh, Stephanie Cohen was co-PI of um, this national trial that I believe was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, so there's very strong academic creed there. But I think the other thing that was very um, uh, groundbreaking for the department is that um, 
per their recommendation, we move very aggressively to implement doxypep as a recommendation far ahead of the CEC. Um, so, you know, you're seeing some of the data that looks promising. I don't think we're quite ready to say it's, 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 you know, definitely due to doxypep, but I would also say as a provider in clinic, uh, I have seen from the day we, well, from the month we initiated doxypep through now, it's becoming very normalized and many, 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 uh, most of the patients I actually talk to know about it and many of them are uptaking it. It's not considered some kind of, you know, unusual thing for people. So it's a, it's an example of groundbreaking research, you know, going from an academic journal to being applied in the community very rapidly, which is something that this team does so well and something that I think we should all be proud of. Thank you for adding that. That's really true. And how rare it is that something published in academic medicine ends up being operationalized in real life. So a real testament to the quality of your work. Thank you so much. It, would it, would y'all join me in applauding this group because they've done incredible work and they continue to do so? All right. Well, I, I guess we'll go to your, this is a hard act to follow, Director Colfax. Now you have to do the director's report. I'm not, I'm not planning to follow. <laughs> so um, thank you again, everybody. So um, in the director's report, I did want to just mention a couple of things. One uh, key thing is that at Laguna Honda Hospital, um, we are currently engaged in our um, second uh, survey towards uh, Medicare recertification. Uh, we had surveyors arrive last, a week ago, Monday, um, and we had surveyors come again uh, this week. So the team is uh, very uh, hard at work in ensuring that we're doing everything we can uh, for a successful uh, survey. As always, we expect findings, especially for a facility of our size. Uh, the goal is to ensure that uh, findings are um, taken care of as quickly as they are found. And uh, even after the survey is complete, we anticipate the official determination from CMS will take more time. So I just really want to acknowledge the, all of the Laguna Honda staff. Um, surveys are stressful, um, and uh, they are continuing to work very hard to make sure that we're doing everything we can. So um, more news to come, but we are in a major, um, this, this is the second survey after this first survey that led to successful Medicaid recertification. Again, this is the second survey that is required for uh, Medicare recertification. Um, just also wanted to emphasize that on, uh, you started, um, President Green, I believe you started the, the presentation around acknowledging the, the World AIDS Day. And we, um, uh, we recognized uh, World AIDS Day uh, last Friday and uh, including um, making sure that people continue to understand that San Francisco is uh, a leader in, in this work, both nationally and in, in many ways internationally, and uh, was very pleased to see um, some of the activities that were going on. I was able to attend the AIDS Memorial Grove um, uh, event, which is a nice local uh, event that actually has a national um, footprint. And I would, if people haven't visited the um, AIDS Grove for, for some time or ever, I would really encourage people to go there. It's a very wonderful place for reflection. And in uh, commemoration of of what we've both what, who we've lost and how far we've come with regard to the to, to HIV. Um, 
In the written director's report, going back to Laguna Honda for a minute, really thrilled to announce uh, that we um, that our new uh, uh, chief medical officer, medical director, has started Laguna Honda. Started last Monday, December fourth, um, Dr. Albert Lamb, um, and uh, he has an extensive experience and expertise in in uh, skilled nursing uh, facility long term resident uh, long term care facility patient care. Um, and you'll, you'll see his qualifications there, but just to emphasize, we did a national search um, and Dr. Uh, Lamb was the top candidate. We're so pleased to have him join the DPH team. Next item, uh, we are in the holiday season and we would like everybody to do everything they can to stay as healthy as possible during the holiday season. So uh, there, we have a lot of detailed guidelines, but I would just point out the key areas, which is get vaccinated against COVID-19, flu and RSV. If, 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 if um, you're qualified for RSV, stay home, please. If you're sick, um, get treatment. If you do get sick, um, consider wearing a mask and indoor public places and improve ventilation, particularly if people are over 65 or people have certain health conditions. Uh, and these uh, recommendations were issued by uh, Dr. Phillip, our, our health officer in conjunction with other uh, 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 nearby county uh, health officers. And then uh, just another update, I, I wanted to also celebrate the um, department's work, uh, acknowledge the department's work in during the uh, APEC conference a, a couple of weeks ago. There was extensive uh, work done um, across the city, of course, across many city uh, departments, but uh, the Public Health Emergency Preparedness and Response FEPR branch, which is again under the Population Health uh, Division of the department, um, did uh, a huge amount of work, including and along with our other city, uh, sorry, department divisions. Uh, and the public health mission for APEC was to ensure minimal disruption to health and medical services and to be ready for, uh, to respond to and mitigate unexpected adverse events. DPH's preparations for the event would not have been possible without the intensive planning with internal and external department stakeholders that began, began in May. Leading up to APEC, FEPR ensured cross-communication between DPH teams and supporting APEC operations, coordinated personnel and other resources, conducted preparedness trainings and exercises, supported community messaging, and facilitated contingency planning uh, for departmental and SF healthcare facilities. Uh, our FEPR activated the Department of Operations Center um, from November 13th uh, through November 17th during the conference to monitor and respond to potential disruptions uh, to DPH local health facilities and community partners. And across the department, there were many other contributions, including within uh, the population health. The environmental health branch um, was working very hard during the conference to ensure food safety. Uh, we had in the um, ambulatory care branch, we had the Maria XM uh, clinic open uh, in late hours um, for people who, uh, so people could access healthcare. And then to acknowledge the tremendous work at Zuckerberg San Francisco Hospital, um, which is the level one trauma center was coordinating with many entities, um, including federal um, agencies and, uh, and, and working with um, uh, emissaries from uh, other foreign governments uh, to make sure that uh, we understood and were prepared for any potential catastrophic events, which thankfully did not happen. 
So I just wanted to em emphasize the work across the department, the collaboration across the department and um, the overall success of, of uh, from a public health standpoint of, of that conference. And I will stop there. Oh, I do have one more COVID update. Um, with regard to COVID, our uh, test positivity rate is 6.2%. So um, right now we're not seeing a big increase after the Thanksgiving holiday. We may see something a little bit in a, in, in a, in a week or two. Um, and right now there are 28 uh, total COVID hospitalizations in, in hospitals across the city. And 21% uh, of San Francisco residents are fully up to date on their COVID vaccination. That um, is low. It is um, more than uh, double. I think it's actually triple the national average, um, if I'm correct. So um, certainly we have more room to go in terms of giving, uh, making sure that people are up to date on their vaccination, but we're doing better than uh, national um, numbers by far. That's my report. I'll be happy to answer any questions. Thank you for the report. And I think you know, we really appreciate your calling out all the work that went into APEC. I mean, as you say, it was tremendous undertaking and it seemed invisible, right? Because uh, it, nothing happened because all this work that was invisible happened. And so it's a real testament to the department, as we said before, the coordination of multiple agencies to pull this off, which was quite a, as I say, quite an undertaking. And then we're delighted that we have a medical director at uh, Laguna, that's such great news. So is there any public comment on the item? It would like anyone in the room like to make public comment on this item? All right, we've got one caller. Uh, Sus, can you unmute the caller, please? And I'll put three minutes on the timer. Caller, please let us know that you're there. Hi, it's Dr. Palmer. Can you hear me? Yes, begin, please. Yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled that you've recruited Dr. Lamb to be medical director. And I hope you give him and the... the um, new nursing home administrator the support they need um, so Laguna Honda doesn't run into trouble again. I, I'm also very happy that the surveyors are there. I know you've done extra work uh, to make sure that you're meeting your goals at Laguna Honda. And can you give us any estimates of when, you know, uh, or a range of when admissions might um be reinstituted. We are going into flu season and um, people are being transferred out of county because they need those beds. And um, so, so it's pretty crucial that readmissions occur. And I would like reassurance that you will continue to um, get, uh, get a waiver to get those 120 beds back. Um, thank you very much. Right, thank you. That's the only uh, public comment on this item. And then commissioner comments or questions? All right, I, I see none. So thank you so much for the report. And our next item is other business. Is there any other business? Let me check to see if uh, would anyone online like to make a comment for other business? Please press star three. All right, so officially the meeting was adjourned at 5.30 when Commissioner Guillermo left, just to note. So you all cannot vote because there's not a quorum. So the meeting is... De facto. Yes. Thank you all for being here. Okay. <laughs> yes.